On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Peter Olivetti. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I have a conversation with somebody in the bike frame building world. And um, it's different people. It's frame builders. And, you know, we've had a painter and, uh, you know, people who host the trade shows. And I want to have a variety of people who, who are in the industry and who make it happen, who make it work. Uh, this week, my guest is Pete Olivetti. And so he's been a frame builder for uh, quite a while, actually. He took a frame building class at UBI in 2004 and then uh, proceeded to run bike shops and have a photo business and do different things. And it was about four or five years ago that he got back into making bike frames again and like actually got his own shop going. And so I, uh, I met him in person for the first time at the Philly Bike Expo last year. We, we shared a booth, which is a really cool thing that you can do at the Philly Bike Expo as a smaller or newer exhibitor, especially uh, or, or if you only need half a booth, but we shared a booth last year, and so I got to know him pretty well, and uh, his bikes are really cool. He does uh, primarily steel bikes that are welded and brazed, and, um, uh, you know, road bikes, mountain bikes, uh, pretty straightforward stuff, and so, yeah, I got to know him and talk to him, and I saw him some more at NABS then in Sacramento in the spring, and um, I enjoy I enjoy Pete's work and talking to him, and so I wanted to get him on the podcast. And because you know we're both going to be at the Philly Bike Expo coming up, and um, I'm happy to uh, especially emphasize interviews with people who will be exhibiting at that show on the run up to that show because I think it's a great show. And um, you know I just you know nobody's paying me to do the press for PBE, but uh, I just think it's a good show, and so I'm trying to do my part to help promote it and um, and bring attention and awareness to it. And so Pete will be there, and you'll be able to see his bikes and. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, when I was chatting with him at NABS, I think that was really interesting was he was talking about some of the things that he learned uh, in the years when he was working as a professional photographer, things that he learned about, you know, sales and, and business and customer relations and stuff that uh, really helped him to succeed with that. And then applying and comparing and contrasting some of that experience and knowledge to, you know, trying to run a frame building shop. Uh, because you know he was pretty successful with photography, and as most people have a sense, uh, frame building is a tough one to make any money at and to make a successful uh, business operation in frame building. It's it's a trick, and so um, you know for anyone who's actually making a go of it, uh, it's it's always it's I think it's interesting to have those conversations with other builders. And so um, you know we were talking about that some at NABS, and that was particularly part of why I wanted to get him on the show. Uh, and we talk about that some about, you know, some of the things that he's learned that has helped him uh, to be successful um, trying to, you know, run a business and run it as a business uh, rather than just as a, it, it's easy to do frame building as an expensive money pit and uh, it's a lot of fun and, uh, and for some people that's all they want and, and, you know, that makes totally sense for their lives. But uh, for anyone who's interested in the business of it and trying to make it work, um, yeah, I have a lot of fun talking about that kind of stuff. I really struggled uh, in the time that, you know, I was a hobbyist, but I wanted to be, you know, taking it serious like, like a business person and was really floundering with that. And so, um, you know, now I'm, I'm selling tools to frame builders, uh, which is a slightly different business model, but I'm still always very interested in how builders are making it work. And if there's anything that I can do to like bring those conversations to the surface and share those with other frame builders, hopefully that's valuable to people also. The sponsor for this week's episode is not one of my cool and beautiful and shiny tools. Not going to tell you about all the merits of my tools again this week. Uh, somebody else is doing something cool and I want to talk about it. So uh, Benjamin Brewer, Ben Brewer, is a professor of sociology at James Madison University. And he is doing a study about uh, like professional frame builders. And he's trying to synthesize and compile the information that he gets through uh, interviews and through basically anything he can get his hands on uh, so that he can compile the best information he can about the body of people that are um, you know, professional frame builders, right? And so there's a survey that you can fill out and it takes 10 to 15 minutes and it's confidential and you should do that. It's bit.ly slash frame builders. And I'll say that again in a minute. 
And uh, if you go there and you fill out the survey, uh, you know, it's, it's questions about, um, you know, how many bikes do you build? What materials do you build in? Uh, you know, do you do repairs? And, you know, uh, is, it, is part of what makes it possible that you're doing this, that, you know, you live with a spouse who's healthcare? You, so, so questions that, that have to do with uh, the nuts and bolts of like how your business sort of functions and, and how much it functions, how much business you do. Uh, and there's some other things, you know, like what kind of training did you have? You know, frame builders don't have a trade union or licensing or a guild or like there's no centralized information that we have about our trade. And um, and then add into that the fact that like, you know, if, if you're trying to sell a high end product, you need to be kind of oozing with confidence or it can feel that way. And so I think a lot of people, um, and, you know, and not like I'm naming names or anything. I think I've, almost everybody is guilty of this to one degree or another. So many frame builders are kind of like faking it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think you need to present professionalism uh, if you want to make and sell a high-end product. And it's a tough business to, to, to make work. And so I think there's a lot of people who feel pressured to have an especially successful pro- professional presentation of themselves if they're trying to, to run their business and succeed and stuff. And so the beauty of a survey like this is that you can confidentially or anonymously uh, submit information about, you know, your experience. It gets synthesized into a study. And now we have some like representative data that, that talks about what the whole of frame building looks like. And, um, you know, that's not going to reflect negatively on any one person. And so, you know, that, that way we can have better data. And so for me, as someone who makes and sells tools to this demographic of people, I would love to have better data about this demographic. If you are a frame builder, wouldn't it be cool to know more about the profession that you, that you spend your life doing? Um, if you are a hobbyist and you think maybe someday you would like to make it your full-time work, wouldn't you like to know more about it? And so in service of that, uh, you know, if you make and sell any bike frames, uh, you should consider filling out this survey um, you know, it's funny, I actually have a sociology degree <laughs> from an undergrad uh, university, and I, I was not a great student, and I certainly haven't thought about it much since I graduated in 2012 with that degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always thought sociology was really cool stuff, um, you know, s- studying the structures that, that uh, sort of uh, dictate our lives and, and um, you, know, you know, shape the, the realities that we can occupy and stuff. So anyway... Um, I think it's a cool uh, study and I would like, I would like to see the best data that can come out of it possible. So, um, yeah, go to bit.ly slash frame builders and, uh, and fill out that survey. It takes 10 to 15 minutes. And, um, and also you can, you can listen to Patrick Brady's The Pull podcast. He just did a, a recently an episode where he interviewed, um, Ben and, and they talked all about the you know, the stuff, which is why I'm not going to have him as a guest on this show, which I otherwise would definitely do because it's super interesting, but, uh, you can, you can listen to a great, uh, podcast already. It's the poll podcast with, uh, Patrick Brady, which covers frame building pretty regularly. I'm sure most of you are aware of that. Um, definitely you should check that out. So anyway, uh, let's get into the show, uh, where we cut in here. I had, um, asked, you know, Pete to give us some background about, uh, you know, where, where he was getting started with custom bike frame building. And so I, at the time I was also racing bikes and I really wanted a cross bike, but I wanted a single speed cross bike and there wasn't really anybody uh, making a tie one that wasn't like, you know, 3,500 bucks. And obviously as a bike racer and didn't have a lot of dough and worked in bike shops and was, had always been interested in design. Um, and that was also pretty recently out of college where I did a lot of photography and sculpture. So I did a lot of metal work. Anyway, so that was sort of my inspiration to do UBI at the time. Their course was 2,500 bucks. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, what a thousand dollar discount on the bike I wanted. Um, <laughs> and I also got to learn, <laughs> learn how to make bikes. And so you took yeah, a titanium you know, frame building class. Yeah. I figured, you know, like if I was going to do, you know, at the time, especially, I feel like titanium was still this like giant mystery to people, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really that big of a upcharge to do the tie or the steel TIG class. And so I was like, well, I might as well just do the tie one since I want a tie bike anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did that, and I was with Kish and DeSalvo and Ron. And, um, yeah, it was cool. You know, I, I think it was a good – well, when I met Wade and Wade and I – Wade had also been racing a lot of, like, the grassroots races in Oregon and stuff like that. Um, but also it was just a – you know, he'd been riding bikes forever. Uh, and so it was awesome. I had, like, my buddy and I for racing had bought this total – kind of jalopy you know like those old mid-80s uh toyota dolphin campers yeah no i have a i have a uh, friend who uh who lived in one of those recently for years <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um they're, they're super underpowered and uh you know it's like a 20-foot camper with a tiny 22re engine in it um uh-huh. but uh we had bought that for racing going to races and um so i was living in that in ashland uh for the class and so we would do our class all day and then like Wade and a couple of the other guys from class and a buddy of mine who was up there would all meet at my camper after, after class and like suit up and go ride for a bunch of hours. And then, you know, we'd go grab some beers and some food and we'd like, I had a little like hibachi girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'd, like have like a little camp out like right next to UBI after, after we're done riding. So it was, it was like this little party camper that we had. It was pretty fun. That's awesome. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, besides, like, the lifestyle aspect of it being fun, that, you know, Jim and, and Mike were super good instructors. And, you know, I think DeSalvo was really good at, you know, showing us, like, the how-tos and, and you know, what was what. And um, Kish was showing us most of the welding stuff and talking to us about, um, you know, this is how we're doing it here and this is might, might be how you do it, you know, at a shop that you set up for yourself and you know, he had a realistic view of it too. He's like, you know, it's going to cost you this much to start up your business. And, you know, basically said like, Hey, you guys are like the pinnacle of bike nerds for building your own bikes. You know, maybe that's good enough. Maybe you want to do work or not. Yeah. Just like kind of a good overall experience with a, with like a shot of like the reality of what it takes to be a bike builder. Yeah. Now, so this was the first you had ever built a bike frame. It was not the first metal work you had ever done. You said you had done some metal work with like, sculptural stuff in college right. or something what did you feel yeah, yeah. like so, did you feel like going into that was i mean titanium is a particularly demanding and, and unforgiving and difficult material to work with it's hard on uh cutters it's uh you know it's it's reactive if exposed to contaminants and oxygen much more so than steel is and um it's a more expensive sure. material all these things and so like did you feel like after you took that class like uh or during that class, like it was maybe not the best starting place or, or do they teach it in such a way that you feel like, uh, you could go on and, and just kind of build some titanium bikes? Uh, I think, you know, so when I had, um, when I did the class, uh, I think that kind of comes up in like two pieces for me. So when I did the class and finished the class, I came away <clears throat> definitely, you know, knowing a lot more about the material. And, uh, the metal work I'd done, uh, for my college degree was mostly make stuff, you know? So you're just kind of like plowing through things, you know, and you're not like worrying about back purges and all this other yeah. stuff. You're just wire feeding, you know, beads, which is, you know, in its own right, like uh, a skill to have too, but it's definitely different than TIG and then definitely different than taking sort of an exotic metal. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those things where, um, from the place where I was coming from, my frame that I came out of this the school with was, you know, clearly a beginner's frame. You know, it was straight, which was awesome, but the welds were terrible. Um, totally utilitarian and functional. Mm-hmm. You know, actually a great example of how durable that frame was, was I don't know, like two or three years later, I had it set up as like my townie and I was riding through town and my, um, I ran over a, like a grate or something. And somehow or another, my fender uh, folded into the front of the wheel, the tire mm-hmm. and just fucking catapulted me <laughs> <laughs> like full blown Superman in the middle of the street. Oh no. And the fork, um, I had had, um, independent, uh, build me a fork and that thing reverse raked itself probably to like a reverse 70 degree rake. Uh-huh. But the frame was totally fine. So I was like, all right, well that was a good testament to the, the fabrication of it. Mm hmm. But that being said, like when I finished that, you know, I think I had a job lined up when I came back to do some, um, to be a manager at a bike shop 
um, chain in Northern California. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I'd been like scraping by as a bike racer and needed to make money. And I was like, all right, well, you know, to start up a tie building shop is going to be a pretty hefty chunk of dough that I don't have. So I'm going to, you know, work at this, you know, retail business a bit and see what I can pull out of that. And I did that for about two years and then just got, you know, that standard bike shop jaded flavor in my brain of like, all right, I need a break from this. Yeah. The the bike industry does that. The bike industry just is like, there's like a, there's a couple really good jobs you could probably get here and there. And, um, but it has a tendency to just kind of chew people up and spit people out. Like it's a, it's very exhausting, especially like if you, if you had your own cute frame building shop and you had a product that, that really resonated with people and they wanted it and you just stayed busy making it. And like, there's some really romantic and nice things about that. But I would say like most of the bike industry is pretty exhausting to, try and sustain yourself in for very long yeah, <laughs> especially like the retail sure. bike you know, shop think, world yeah i think you know the retail space i think anywhere you know in any in any given market um a respil- retail space is just a, it's brutal and especially if you're on the like middle management part of it right like if you're the shop employee like you can especially if you don't have like greater aspirations like as a shop employee you can kind of fuck off and it's fine you know mm-hmm. um but if you're trying to get like the company that I was working for at the time had five shops and I think now has like 16 or something. Um, and is a giant business and has, you know, there's definitely a lot of management positions that can offer you a sustainable salary benefits and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so when you're trying to get through that part mm-hmm. and you're in that sort of middle management where you're dealing with every single problem that like the shop has to offer, um, you know, working a 10 something hour day, yeah. uh, you just get fried. And, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of burnt out on that. Um, and so I went back to like, okay, should I just do the bike building thing and, and sort of was doing the numbers on it. Uh, and at the time I'd picked up a couple photography, uh, gigs with, um, some like families that I knew, mm-hmm. uh, you had studied like, photography okay, like, some in college. Yeah. So my, my, uh, my degree in college was a bachelor of fine arts and I just happened to do it specifically in photography and then also sculpture as like the, I did a lot of multimedia stuff. So I would take my photographs and like install them in these like big metal structures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it got to the point where I was like, okay, I got to get like money back in the bank account. Um, and the photography part started to, um, started to generate that that income um and so i was like okay well you know I, i've got to chase uh the dollars for a little while here and um you know especially like in you know i was in the bay area like san francisco bay area and um that's really hard to it's so expensive that you can't really you know, you can't let it slide too long. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're, you, you know, you, you're done. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, um, I ended up, uh, pursuing the photography part and then I ended up joining a studio in San Francisco, um, with, uh, between like three and four other photographers that had what are called seats in the studio, mm-hmm. um, which means that you're like a, a lead photographer. Yeah. Um, is this like a portrait and, studio or, uh, you know, I, in a very simple sort of way you could call it that, but we had a whole different process. We, um, we stuck, stuck with film for a really long time. Like we didn't even start dabbling into digital until probably 2010, maybe nine, something like that. Um, and then, and so our whole product, and this is where I think it falls into the bike business a bit was about the experience and the customer service part, mm-hmm. um, where you have, you know, for all intents and purposes in both businesses, you have a pretty saturated market. Um, and so the way that we were to add value and also differentiate ourselves was to one stick with a traditional um, a traditional method. So, you know, sticking with film photography, but also 
uh, walking the clients really through the whole process. Mm-hmm. So we would meet with the client, we would figure out what they wanted, we would then meet them at their house, talk about how the session would go, um, find out where they wanted to have the photographs hung after the session, um, and then we would take the photographs, develop the film, uh, then we would do a presentation with the clients at our studio of like 25 of the best photographs, mm-hmm. and they would pick like you know, two to five photographs, and then we would produce the photographs, and we had a darkroom to make the photographs and we also had a um a framing studio in the studio also so we would by the time it all came back around we had like a finished framed product for the client mm-hmm. to install in their house where we had discussed so sort of like um, the the having the framing studio there and delivering the finished product reminds me a little bit of like the difference between being like a frame builder and a bike manufacturer you know like a you know you can make just the frame and ship the frame or you can make a holistic product that serves the the customer's end use and um they, there's sort of a different thing going on there the one of them it's like somebody has a need or an interest in a problem being solved and you solve that problem directly and then the other one it's like you're catering more to a customer who can solve their own problems and you're you're giving them like the minimum of what they need from you to to get you know a custom bike or something. Totally, totally. And you're you know in, in those situations, you know, I think um, uh, there's some uh, bike builders that would really want to focus their efforts on just pumping out frames, um, and there's others that will you know focus on doing a complete you know design package for the client. And I feel like that. Like you said, is similar to how we were operating our our photo business was, um, you know, producing a whole product, which I think um, one, you know, as as Carl was talking about, allows you a greater scale of margin, mm-hmm. right? So you're not just capturing the frame margin, but you're also capturing the um, the component margin. Yeah. Um, for us at the photo studio, we were capturing obviously the service margin the photograph margin and also the framing margin, which mm-hmm. if anybody wants to get into a business and, and sees, sees a, a niche for it, the custom framing market is insane. Yeah. Um, the, the margin on that stuff is bonkers. Um, <laughs> I've known so, people I mean, who literally worked in framing like, shops. That's uh, that's interesting. It's Yeah, it's crazy. Like you buy your materials for so cheap and, and you charge so much for it. Um, and the, the tooling that you need is so simple. Yeah, especially um, compared to like, you know, frame fixtures and milling machines and stuff. Totally. It, it, it's like having like a, you know, a 700% markup or margin, uh, you know, on your hand file shop that you can produce really fast. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it, it, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So um, instead of frame building bikes, I think we should all just start yeah. frame building picture frames. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, but so, I, you know, I think some of the translations between the two businesses really are um, to sort of bring it back onto those Mm -hmm. rails um, is uh, in a basic sense, I'd say like some of the things that I tend to use is like that experiential part, right? Like I sometimes joke that um, if you really simplify and boil down what um, all of us frame builders are doing that are especially working in metals, you know, it's like you're, we're all sticking a couple triangles together um, in various configurations, but essentially the same, you know, triangular fabrication design uh, with different paint and different stickers or different decals or logos or whatever on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously that's like an overly simplified idea, but um, where you can sort of make your differences are on the experience and what you're providing the client. Yeah. Um, and so if you're that frame builder, that's kind of the grump that like, Oh, he builds really great frames, but he's like grumpy and doesn't respond to me. doesn't call mm-hmm. me back. You know, you're, you're kind of not doing yourself any favors. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm like, um, yeah, you know, I, I remember talking to Ken Erickson one time and he was like, I always pick up the phone. You know, like I never don't pick up the phone. Um, you know, he's like, there might be times where I don't get to it in time, but like, I'm always making sure that I'm having that one-on-one relationship with the client. Um, 
And I think that's, you know, some of the stuff that makes a big difference in, um, your ability to, uh, you know, it takes a lot more time, you know, it's a lot Mm -hmm. harder to like, you know, you're in the middle of the day and like some client calls and wants to talk to you for 30 minutes. It's like, Oh man, like there goes part of my day. But at the same time, um, you're cultivating that relationship and yeah, I think that in the long run, it gets handed down through word of mouth, right? Like, Oh yeah, yeah, I dealt with this guy. You know, he talked to me, talked me through these processes and anytime I had questions, he was there for me. Yeah. And certainly so I, I think that's helpful. You can buy bikes impersonally and they're cheaper. You know, I mean, you might get some personal time <laughs> yeah, totally. from a bike shop or you can buy from like bikes direct or, well, nowadays you can buy pretty much anything online, I guess. Uh, most, most bikes, yeah, sure. a lot of bikes are sold online, but Anyway, you can buy stuff impersonally, and it'll save you a little bit of cash. But uh, you know, if you're going to get something handmade, it's not just that the frame is fabricated by you know like a North American or whatever it is where you're buying. You know, it's not just that it's created by someone you think of as more of an artisan. I feel like what you're really selling someone, in my mind, is more of like a a personal connection and like uh, you know that they get to know you and they get a chunk of your time and expertise and um, you know I'm a really I'd like to think I'm a practical and frugal person or I know that I'm cheap anyway and a lot of times I know that like it costs more to get people's time and so like I, a lot of times I've avoided that sort of thing but I think if you if you realize that you are not always your own customer and you make a handmade product and you resent the customer side of it, I think that's going to just hurt you. Cause like making good impressions on people and making people glad that they did business with you. Or I think, um, when I talked to Colin from matter cycles years ago at NABS, he was saying something about like giving people that, that, that experience when they work with you, that they all just kind of want to be a cheerleader for your business. Like they just kind of like, just because of how, how good it made them feel, they just want to like spread the word. Cause it just, it felt good, you know? Totally. Totally. Building that connection is huge. And like, um, it's a personal Colin, thing. Yeah, it's totally personal. And you're really buying the frame builder, right? Um, so like, yeah, guys like Colin, um, another guy that does a really great job of it is uh, my buddy Chad that does Corvid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done a really good job of like um, creating a flavor and a setup for um, the people that buy his bikes end up being like tremendous ambassadors for him. Um, and I think that stuff is re- really important and sometimes understated um, or not understated, but misunderstood. Yeah. But, you know, like you have like, a, um, you know, some like super nerdy bike shop guy, like how I started out, but maybe doesn't have the personal skills or interpersonal skills. It goes on to say like, oh, I'm going to become a frame builder. And then I'm like, holy cow, I got to talk to people all the time. Yeah. And and that, that for somebody that's like used to being like a ranch where you can sit in the back, you know, and, and, you know, for lack of better words, like talk shit about how this guy brought in a rusty chain mm-hmm. on their bike. Like, that stuff doesn't really fly when you're trying to sell stuff that's, you know, in the, you know, five to $10,000 range. Yeah. Um, you know, and, um, you're, you're selling a luxury good, uh, you know, and even if your clients maybe don't always seem like a luxury client, they're still giving you two grand for a steel frame or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but I think, um, you know, the other thing that I, you know, and I think you and, um, I think it was like me, you, maybe you and my buddy Chad and, um, Doug Restmeister were talking about it maybe at uh, NABS last year was also just having the knowledge of how sales work. Um, and, um, you know, I haven't totally dialed in, you know, the translation of my photo business sales system to, the bike stuff, but there's a lot of similarities that I have been using. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think a real tricky one for anybody that's in a sort of creative field, which I'll call bike building somewhat of a creative field. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have the same thing as an artist where they don't necessarily know what their time and product is worth. Yeah. It creates this weird situation of like, Oh, how do I price this? How do I even ask for the money? Which is a weird thing uh, mm-hmm. for some people. And I think, um, you know, if you have studied some sales systems, um, you know, there's always like 
you know, steps to it where you're, you know, you have a prospective client call you, they called you for a reason. They didn't call you not to buy a bike, you know, yeah. some of them do. Some of them just want to talk a lot of stuff about bikes, which is um, fine. But then you need to know where that point is of like, okay, this guy is either that buyer or not that buyer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of knowing where to save yourself a lot of headache is to, you know, know how to close, you know, it doesn't have to be a hard close, but like, you know, I have a conversation with, um, I'll have conversations with a client and at a certain point, um, in the conversation where we sort of fizzled out our, okay, like we're talking about this bike now. Um, you know, then I just, you know, as smoothly as I can segue into like, okay, well, here are the next steps of what we do. Mm -hmm. And included in that conversation is like, you know, the next step is that I take a deposit, you know, and if they start backpedaling, um, then, okay, like then they're, they're either not ready or they're just surfing or they're, um, uh, you know, or they just wanted to chew my ear about bike nerd stuff for an hour, you know? Um, but you, you know, to save yourself, I mean, all that time is, is time that you can be spending on other stuff. So you kind of have to know, when to find out whether that person's serious or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You need to be open enough with your time and willing to get to know people and talk to people enough that you have lots of like engagements and connections. You make good impressions on people and then still realize that there's just never enough time to do all the things you need to. And so at some point you have to be, uh, you know, ready to, um, yeah, to ask the question like, you know, are you ready to move forward with this? Or, you know, this is what the next step looks like or whatever, just so that they know that like if they continue to to ask questions and talk to you without moving forward, that like, you know, that they're kind of bothering you. <laughs> and that if they are ready, yeah, which, yeah. you know, if they reached out to you because they're ready, then, you know, I think a lot of times I, I never had any confidence or interest in selling people stuff in the past. I think part right. of it is just like being kind of a like having a lot of friends who are like crust punks and being kind of artsy fartsy and into bikes and all these things that I was maybe resenting, right. um, you know, the, the, the businessman or whatever it is. And, uh, none of that ever felt that comfortable or, or interesting to me. And only in the last year or so, if I started to get a little more serious about that and, you know, if I'm on a long drive, I'll listen to some like audiobooks and things about, you know, sales and marketing and business. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's stuff that anybody can learn and you don't need to be, I guess like I was, when I was younger, I was always so endlessly skeptical of anyone who would ever try to sell you anything because some people who try to sell you stuff do not really respect you when you say that you're not interested. And they kind of like, you, you eventually just need to kind of like hang up on them or whatever, because they're so persistent and it's obnoxious. But because sure. because you like avoid that because you're like afraid of being that like infomercial guy or whatever i think a lot of people at least people who are incl- like artist inclined or whatever you'll be so far in the other direction that like someone wants your product they called you or emailed you or whatever cuz they're interested and they're kind of like they need to be closed or they need to be sold or something and like you're not even ready to do that and so for me in the last year or so, I've really started to get a little bit more comfortable with like realizing that like, yeah, like people reach out when they're actually interested. You give them all the information they ask for. You try and help them understand what it is they might be buying and what that looks like. And then, you know, you say like, this is what it would cost, you know, and like, for instance, when people send me an email asking about my tube bender now, uh, most of the rest of my stuff you can buy through the web store. But if they send me a question about the tube bender and they say, oh yeah, I'm really interested in this. I'll, I'll write like a thoughtful response. I'll spend like 15 minutes or something or as long as it takes to write a response yeah. that answers their questions, helps suggest which bending dies they want. And then I'll say, I'm also sending an invoice via PayPal. It's editable. Right. And, you know, if you want to make any changes, we can. And then like that reflects the thing. And like half the time people just pay the invoice and then they send me the email response and they say, cool, I paid the invoice. But like in the past, right. I would have felt like that would be, I, I used to think that was like being so pushy and like that would make people uncomfortable, but like, why would that make someone uncomfortable? They specifically told me they were really interested in it. And so I don't know, like, <laughs> right, I'm, exactly. I'm sure some people hear this kind of thing and they say, this is obvious. Of course you need to be able to make a sales pitch. But I think, you know, frame building is like, it is sort of artistic. It's like, there are these beautiful objects, you know, who wants to be a frame builder? It's someone who 
loves riding bikes. You know, like that doesn't, I think a lot of people get into the business of frame building, not because they're business people, but because they like making stuff. And so I think like, right, sure. I always really appreciated Carl Strong and some other people who would actually talk about the business of it because it's just, it's, it's lacking. Like not that many people want to talk about it. Sure. Uh, yeah. I think people are a little bit gun shy of the numbers, you know, mm-hmm. but if you, um, you do at some point have to take a look at it and unless you're just like super lucky and really efficient at building bikes like you have to look at the numbers and go like okay like nobody's gonna pay me to be a failure at this yeah you know and and you know if you don't have money to keep the train moving um if you don't have some sort of capital to roll with uh, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and it's going to seem like that, you know, that sort of stereotypical, oh, I tried to do frame building, but it's like, it's just so hard. And it's like, yeah, sure, sure it's hard. Like, and, and most likely, um, depending on who you are and what your designs are and how popular you are and all that kind of thing, like, you may not be, you know, you're not going to pick up a torch and be, um, you know, those middle-level manufacturers like Moots or something right out of the gate, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, that stuff takes time. And, uh, and uh, you know, to ask how many frame builders are out there now, especially with how many are out there now, to ask how many of those guys actually put together a business plan, you'd, it'd be mind-boggling, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's so few that probably have a business plan in effect. Um, and, um, yeah, and so I think... Um, a part about, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know, necessarily closing, closing or whatever, but like people are not people that are interested in buying something, especially, you know, something like we're talking about, like a high end good, um, expect to pay for it. Um, maybe a price for one thing or another might be more than they expected. Um, but for the most part, if you go, okay, here's the time where we deal with money, you know, like, okay, yeah, I was expecting that. Yeah. You know, um, so, um, you know, and there's, there's different things, um, that you can go about doing, uh, and, you know, like one of the things that I, I will do, you know, my, my pricing sort of in general is on my site, but, um, one of the things that I do in my bike talk with clients that I did in my photo business was, um, something called price impressioning, um, which, I think is probably a weird one for some people, but you know, I always let people know what the range they can spend on a complete bike is, mm-hmm. you know, which, which could be anything from, you know, $12,000 to, you know, five or so thousand dollars. Um, and by presenting them with the, the highest number, um, it will, uh, sort of ease the blow when they're sort of a $7,000 client, you know? Yeah. If that, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so if you're like, um, you know, if you sort of said to somebody like, Oh, you could get a bike for, you know, $4,500, which is possible. Um, uh, and then they go, well, I want this like cool paint and I want, you know, Dura-Ace or XTR stuff. And I want, you know, the nicest Fox fork. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, all right, cool. You know, like, that's going to be, you know, $11,000. And they're like, wait, I thought it was going to be four thousand dollars Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you know, <laughs> then you're in a bad position. Yeah. Um, so by price impressioning people a little bit, um, you know, you may, you know, if there was somebody that was hoping for four grand, you might scare them off, mm-hmm. um, which might be fine because that's yeah. not a lot of margin dollars for you. Um, you're also letting the client know that like, hey, like, you know, here are a couple ideas, but know that you could go sky's the limit if you want and mm-hmm. not if you don't want to. Yeah. And I mean, um, it's, but uh, one of the things that's maybe like, uh, you know, one of the taboo factors of talking about the business of it or something is just that like, um, you know, it's like we, we, we all want to make something good that we're proud of. We want to make something beautiful right. and something like technically good that solves the problem that's fun to ride you know we're all like nobody gets into frame building who wasn't already a huge nerd about bikes uh you know so like 
if you start talking about business too much or something, it suggests that like, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's kind of coming from a different angle or something, but what it's in service of is that like, if you love it and if you want to do it and you want to do it well, there, you know, you, you need, it's, it's not a business where you just kind of show up and because you did a good job, you, you made a living. I think there's like, there's a right. lot of ways in the world where like, you know, if you're like, I would, I don't know, no shade to any other businesses or trades, but I would imagine like if you're, if you're a really good plumber in a local area, right. you maybe would survive just based on word of mouth and because people need their, their pipes fixed. And because every time you, you fix someone who legitimately has a pipe need, <laughs> a, you know, a plumbing need, you make them so happy that they tell people and like, yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of businesses where you can survive on the merits of your good work alone. And I just wholeheartedly right. do not believe that frame building is one of those. I think like you need to, right. you need to think critically about differentiation and about marketing and business. And that doesn't need to consume everything that you do necessarily. But like, uh, I think it means that there's good opportunity for people who are interested in that. And I think it means, right. um, that like once you kind of, get used to the idea of like listening to those audiobooks sometimes and trying to integrate that into your website and social media use and stuff, then it like, it kind of comes more naturally and you get to focus it's in service of being able to do the thing that you love, you know, and like your own on your own terms yeah. and making your customers happy. But like, I just don't think that it's the kind of thing that works for people who don't spend the time to, to consider that side of it specifically. Sure. Totally. And I, and I think also people appreciate, you know, a sort of, um, a professional execution to things, right? Like, yeah, um, you know, sort of haphazard style of things um, doesn't doesn't in the end feel good to the customer, um, and uh, you know, like um, one of the things that Carl said, and one of the things that I believe is like, you know, you make things sort of price simple so that you know, uh, you know, I've I've seen builders that, um, you know, say, okay, like the frame is, let's just, let's put out a number of like 1900 bucks. And then the person's like, you know, they didn't do their due diligence at the beginning of like, oh, do you want this dropout or do you want these brazons? And then all of a sudden, like when the final invoice comes, it's let's say $2,300 and the customer's like, well, why is it, you know, $500 more than you said? Mm -hmm. like, oh, cause you added these water, but you know, the extra bosses and the like, rack mounts and the, like, yeah, but you didn't tell me that, you know, like, and so yeah. that client then has like this, you know, sour taste in their mouth at the end of like, oh, it cost way more than that person told me. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I think, you know, I, I don't think any of this stuff is like, I, I don't know. I, for some reason, it seems like in, in the bike industry, it ends up being like a new science, you know, yeah, I think but if you look at any exactly. other, <laughs> any other selling system, um, those things are all there, you know, yeah, uh, I, I, maybe it's just who I've particularly surrounded myself with in, in my time, uh, being into bikes, but I just think it does seem like the, the bike industry and the handmade bike industry specifically really like is occupied by a lot of people who are, are skeptical of business and are skeptical of uh selling and are skeptical of salesmen and so like and i get that i think right. it's, it's warranted to be skeptical for there's a lot of reasons but like uh you know if you're actually gonna if you're gonna try and run a business whatever it is a coffee shop or a you know bike bike frame building shop or whatever it is uh i think you know it it, it needs to be something that you study you can't just I think you can't just study the work itself because like it, they're, they're both very important to the success. Sure. Sure. And I think it also circles around to what you said earlier about like, you have to realize that you're not selling to yourself, right? Oh yeah. Um, you know, when yeah, I like ran frame bike builders shops, are always hard. Frame builders are practical people who enjoy working with <laughs> their hands and who are generally kind of cheapskates. Like that's not yeah, your customer yeah, totally. at all. They don't want to spend a lot of money on stuff. Right. And like, and same with like a, you know, a bike shop employee who often turn into frame builders, you know, they, uh, you know, are used to like looking at pricing at a wholesale level. And then when they look at what they have to sell it to somebody for, they're like, wow, that seems really expensive. And you're like, well, that's what people pay retail on, you know? So like, you got to be comfortable with that. Yeah. You're, you're totally right on that. And I think that's the tricky part for a lot of builders is not coming into it, looking at it as a small business, but looking at it as, a hobby that they're like, Oh, I could make some money doing this. Um, 
and you very well might be able to make some money doing it, but unless you really take the steps to turn it into a business, um, you're just going to be making some money doing it, you know, yeah. if any. And that's fine too. You know, I mean, if, if you don't totally. want it to be your sole income, you might enjoy that more. That might be a lot less stressful. Uh, you might, you might be happier doing that. I think, uh, you know, I've noticed, a, I think a fair amount of my customers are not, trying to make a professional go of it and they just you know they just like uh they like making stuff in their shop frame building is satisfying to make your own bikes or maybe to make some bikes for your friends and loved ones uh you know it's like it's really satisfying to make things you know just like a a blacksmith or a luthier or something and uh to make something as as personal and as lovely as a bicycle is really cool and it doesn't need to be a business model but i think um if that is where you're headed then behooves you to you know study that yeah totally and i I think like that's i think even as a profession right like like in your when you're talking to chapman you know you sort of finish the frame and pop it out of the fiction like yeah it's a bike you know like you kind of get that whether it's your business or your hobby. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just satisfying. That always happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, um, so let's segue into a different uh, discussion and the role of paint and handmade bicycles. Um, yeah. You know, I, you don't do any of your own paint or powder coat work or anything, right? right. So uh, right. what is it that you think, you know, from, from all the work that you've done making bikes for customers and, uh, you know, understanding what it is that they're after in the end, you know, what do you think is the role of paint? Is it, um, you know, do you feel like people generally respond to fancier paint jobs with multiple colors or you'd like to uh, see, you know, more Uh, simple stuff or, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think it, um, what I feel like the real role of paint is in the sort of the builder client relationship is, um, there's a lot of stuff, that the client can't do um, in the sense like they're not fabricating the bike. They can give you some ideas as to like what, what's going to work or what they want as far as like dimensionality. Um, but even there, a lot of the clients don't know geometry very well. They just know what they want the bike to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to paint, like that's where they get to control it a little bit, you know? So that really becomes um, an important factor to the consumer a lot of the times is like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, like this is the cool part for me, right? Is I get to pick what I want. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's a big part of um, yeah, I've definitely, the function of paint. I've definitely noticed that where people who have had custom bikes made or, or even like people who've like done like DIY custom bike projects with some production bike frame, but they, you know, they tricked it mm-hmm. out or whatever. I feel like people talk a lot about, I've noticed that like the, the, the person who owns the bike when they're showing it to someone else, you know, proudly or something talking about like, Oh yeah. And like, we really wanted, I wanted to do this with the paint because of, you know, it's my school colors or I don't know, like people have like reasons for, for like the symbolism of these different decisions. And, uh, and it, it's, yeah, I can totally see what you're saying. Like that, um, ends up being a, a way that the person can sort of express themselves and, and choose, uh, to make the bike more personal to them. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like, um, and it's cool. Like I love like the super cool paint. Um, but I just got a bike, um, back from Ollie, uh, dark matter does pretty much all of my paint. Um, Ollie sent me a frame back. Um, that was just like a midnight blue powder, um, with the logos in white, uh, under the clear coat, like, you know, and it was all gloss. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't even do the fork or the gravel bike and, man, it looked badass, you know, like it was super simple paint. Like it wasn't, um, you know, there was nothing tricky about it. It wasn't like two-tone fade, you know, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was just solid midnight blue, um, with white logos. I was like, holy cow, man, this thing looks amazing. Um, so I think there's also something to be said for like, um, you know, a classic simple look is also pretty, pretty cool too. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, it just depends how much, you know, how much the, um, client has invested in it. Um, I mean, I even had like probably the first mountain bike I put out, um, was to a a guy in California. Um, and he wanted to personalize it, you know, um, sort of in a memorial way. 
Uh, and so I took it to a pinstriper in Petaluma, you know, and he did all this hand pinstriping work, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I get, you know, I think paint, uh, you know, I, I think you and, and Carl kind of touched on it too. Like, you know, when it comes time to like bike shows, um, you know, the idea of paint and personal personalization kind of goes into like the fashion mode, right? You're yeah. like, how cool can I make this thing look? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, um, you know, and I think that's another, that's sort of a different, um, scenario, uh, especially from the builder's side, right? Cause you're really, what you're trying to do is get that, like, you know, you're trying to get like, you know, you know, the radivist or bike rumors to snap a photo of your bike, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point it becomes like as much a personalization, if it's a client's bike as a marketing piece, if it's, you know, a bike that you have to buy on your own. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly standing um, out in the seemingly uh, pretty dense crowd of frame builders is uh, is always a consideration if you're if you're trying to make a some you know commercial success of your of your work, uh, you need to be able to do that in paint is clearly a part of how people do that. Yeah, totally. You know, and I think you know, I think there's a lot of guys. Um, Oh, you know, like, I mean, there's really great examples of guys that just, you know, knock design out of the park from the get-go, right? I mean, you have guys like Bernsey and um, Adam Sklar and um, I think Wit at Merriweather does really crazy cool designs. Um, so I'm missing a ton of people, but, you know, there's guys that have the design of the bikes before it and it can either just be like, you know, if it's a tie design, they'll just have it media blasted or whatever. Um, and, and the sort of function and design of the bike can speak for itself. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of the rest of us that are doing, you know, like, you know, the two triangle design, like simple design. Um, and, you know, hopefully the quality of your bike speaks for itself, but you kind of have to pull yourself out somehow. And so hopefully you have sort of a, consistent marketing message that's speaking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. And, and another thing that I wanted to, to cover a little bit in the interview is, mm-hmm. so I know you, you worked in bike shops, you took the titanium frame building class at UBI yep. in 2004, worked in bike shops yep. in California, kind of got jaded to that, worked in a you know, photo studio in California and, uh, worked as a photographer. What, what was it more, I guess it was a little in the last couple of years, or when was it that you started to build up your own frame building shop and do more frame building work? Sure. Or were you always doing a little bit of that? Um, you know, it has always, it, it had always um, been there, you know, like when um, I probably from like 2002 on, uh, you know, the vast majority of my bikes, um, if I wasn't building them myself, which I, for the most part didn't, um, I was usually having a custom builder make something for me. Um, just cause one, I have, I'm not super strange fit wise, but I'm super long armed and legged. And so it was always better for me to have a custom. I liked having a custom mountain bike anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, so at my photo business was actually, uh, doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh by all accounts um certainly making more money than my bike business is right now mm-hmm. uh one of the real shifts was um having a family uh ironically like you would think having a family you'd want to keep that money flowing but um in the bay area my wife and i were spending so so much time um uh commuting that we weren't spending enough time you know, as a, a family unit and like we were, you know, paying somebody a god awful amount of money to watch our kid, um, which uh, we continued to do even when I started bike building again. But um, I basically, my last sort of hurrah in California was uh, I started, I had a friend that owned a bike shop that uh, was looking for a manager um, right around the time where my photo business was doing really well, but I was like, I can't drive 17,000 miles around the Bay area every year, um, and try to like see my kid on a regular basis. Um, and so I started tapering my photo business and, uh, working for this bike shop, uh, you know, kind of hoping to make that turn into something. Um, and, and, you know, potentially having an outlet 
to put my bikes into as well. And so I started working on the bike stuff a bit more um, and working on some business plans. I, I did kind of the, the I guess, business development grunt work um, while I was working at the bike shop um, and kind of toying with the idea. Um, and then um, essentially my wife ended up with an opportunity to move back out to Colorado um, and it sort of afforded um, us the opportunity to allow me to have a little bit more leeway in, in developing the bike business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a, a stronger, um, you know, I, I probably my first two bikes as all of Eddie bicycles were built in California. And then um, it started in earnest when we moved back to Colorado about four years ago. Okay. About uh, four years ago. And yeah. And so, that started with, you know, me working out some designs on my own. And then, um, a couple of my buddies in California when I started my business had wanted bikes. And so they had given me deposits. Um, so, you know, like that first round of bikes was designs that I did to sort of as proof concepts and then building them again for, you know, um, customers slash buddies in California. Uh, and then, um, from there it's kind of, you know, built itself up through, um, you know, marketing at, marketing at the bike shows, um, marketing locally in Colorado. Uh, um, I do like a group ride every Wednesday morning. Um, and part of that group, you know, that group ride is fun for me to get out, but it's also me chatting with people and, and giving myself some exposure in the local community. Yeah. Um, and so, you yeah, get- you know, it's been a slow, slow. Oh, go ahead. Do you, do you make sales for your bikes to people that you've met locally? Uh, you know, it's, it's like a, it's sort of two pronged, I guess. Um, I think it's people that see me at, you know, at this Wednesday morning ride or at some other ride. Um, I try to do bike events in, in the Boulder area when I can. Um, and then those, you know, uh, I can't remember what it is, but, um, I think like one of the marketing, uh, statistics is it takes like seven impressions for somebody to take action or something like that. Um, uh, and, um, so yeah, I think, you know, riding around town doing those events and then maybe like a Vela news article or bike rumors thing pops up and it, you know, um, kind of peaks, you know, that potential buyer's interest a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, and then a couple of in word of mouth, you know, I've gotten two, two bikes this year that were one customer. So I, I had one customer from doing, uh, we have this one event in Boulder called old man winter rally, which is a gravel race, uh, in the middle of winter, uh-huh. which is, um, sometimes awesome and sometimes horrendous. Um, this last year was horrendous, but, the. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, like two years ago, I was riding uh, with a good group of people, and one guy was on a breadwinner, and we started chatting bikes. You know, and a year and a half later, uh, the guy called me. and was like, oh, hey, do you remember me? I had a breadwinner, old man winner. And so we talked. I ended up building him a mountain bike. Uh, and then he told his buddy. Um, and so his buddy started to contact me, and we worked out a design. And so that guy bought a bike for me. So, um, you know, I think I think it's part of pounding the pavement. You know, you have to be... You have to be in your shop building, but you have to be out and about mm-hmm. showing up, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I so wonder... That's a, that's a tricky bit. For me, when I was making bike frames, I couldn't sell them to save my life, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think I didn't have a lot of... I didn't have a particularly finished product. Um, I don't think I was very confident when I would talk to people about them. Uh, I didn't go mm-hmm. out in these kinds of group rides all the time. I would ride with my with my like personal friends and stuff. And then I think another right. part of it is just where I live. One of the great things about it, Syracuse, New York, is it's very cheap. Yeah. And one of the issues, yep. if you're trying to sell a high-end product, is that nobody nobody has – people spend money on bikes, certainly, everywhere you go. But, like, I don't know anyone who has handmade bikes here. Um, I just don't – there's right. just not a scene for that. Some people have really expensive treks and things. So there's probably a couple people who have – handmade bikes i have to imagine i guess i don't go to the races and things every weekend but um i think if you live in a higher profile um maybe a little more expensive place like i I have to imagine boulder colorado and 
um, you know, parts of Colorado, I think they say lots of pro cyclists live and, uh, in, in train and uh, I don't know anything about it, but, but anyway, you know, if you live yeah. in an area where, where there's, um, more of a, you know, people doing that sort of thing, I'd have to imagine you have a little bit better chance of actually selling locally. And it's funny when I talk to people about my business, they assume that I'm like meeting with customers and selling stuff. And I sell almost right. nothing within New York state. It's almost all shipped <laughs> and nobody ever comes visit my shop. And so, you know, it's fine that I live somewhere that's cheap because we have trade shows and because, you know, I focus on, uh, on internet marketing, but, um, you know, so it's, it's always interesting to me, the question of like, how much can you do business? Well, you know, with people locally, uh, you know, like what, sure. what, what's possible because certainly for me, I haven't seen it to be a very fruitful Avenue. Yeah. The local part is, is, great if you can do it you know um you know the interesting thing about boulder um is there is a lot of people connected to the industry so somebody always knows somebody you know um so uh you kind of run into that a fair amount where um yeah it's kind of like a target market of who has dollars right um you know and currently the buying population is what like 26 to 40 ish. Um, and, uh, and Boulder, you know, a lot of those people are racers, so they're getting a deal through somebody. So they're going to buy whatever they're getting a deal on. Um, but then there's the other guys that want that different thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, custom frame building is about as vertical as you can get in the industry. So, um, you're obviously not going to like just smear an entire swath of people with your custom bikes, but, um, if you can manage to pull um, a couple people and you turn those guys into ambassadors um, for your product, uh, you know, you can, you know, it'll, it'll start stacking up to, um, you know, if you need to, you know, if you figure that your need for, for income is somewhere between, you know, 30 and 50 bikes at a certain price point, um, you know, every, you know, you have five ambassadors that each help you sell another bike every year. Um, you know, it all adds up to your total for the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely depending on, depending, I mean, the plus side is like you said, having this kind of, uh, marketing, um, you know, you can have global marketing being, uh, in Syracuse, you know, that, which didn't exist before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it's interesting all the different ways that, that you can run these kinds of businesses. And, um, you know, some people are in a, you know, like a quiet little part of the world in their shop and, um, they, they don't meet that many of their customers based on their geography. And then other people are in a very high profile location. You know, you mentioned breadwinner, their shop is, is in Portland and they have a coffee shop and it's like, you know, it's, it's serving more like a, like a bike shop role where like, it's, it's like a hub of cycling culture from, from what I can tell. Um, you know, there's all yeah, different ways sure. to do it and, uh, different models that, that have their strengths and weaknesses. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you just have to figure out where you need to be as far as like, um, you know, breadwinner is a great example of when, you know, you had two really amazing bike builders going like, well, like we're both doing the same thing, serving the same clients. Uh, and we could probably do a lot more if we like joined forces, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, you put Ira Ryan and Tony Pereira together and like, you've got, um, you know, a pretty awesome build team. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and also just like, I mean, that, that town's got a lot of good design ideas and, you know, flavor and, um, you know, they, they were able to simplify their design enough to make it, you know, that sort of, uh, production custom kind of, um, sweet spot. And, you know, I, I talked to Tony at the, nabs that they launched breadwinner um and you know they have their business plan marked out as to like you know this year we're gonna we think we'll do this much and this year we'll do this much and you know they they have their growth mapped out so um yeah i mean i think yeah you know depending on how you can reach your customers um, some ways are easier than others some i think require a little bit more complexity like the breadwinner model where you have like the bike business, you have the coffee shop, you have like a, a, you know, you're trying to build a lifestyle around the whole business. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then, you know, you have guys like me and a lot of other builders that are making go out of it, go at it with like a small start and hopefully, hopefully you can grow it. You know, some guys I think go to a certain capacity and then they 
set it that capacity and that works for them and you know other guys um you know you look at like aaron from mosaic you know who started out with just him and his brother and now he's got a whole team and um you know a, a pretty awesome setup and a great vision for his business mm-hmm. so um but yeah so many different ways to do it for sure yeah cool well uh uh, I think we can wrap it up there. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, and um, I'll see you at the Philly Bike Expo. We each have our own booths yeah, this year, sure. but um, yeah, yeah, we have our own booths this year, which will be awesome. Yeah, um, the show's yeah, well, always a blast. Um, yeah, thanks for the call. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I love Philly. It's like a great. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, you just talked to Bina, and I think one of the best parts about Philly is. Um, it's super busy, but it's not overwhelming like NAVS. I mean, this year at NAVS, I didn't leave my booth for maybe more than two hours total the whole weekend. Yeah. Um, whereas Philly, you can be like, I'm going to go step out for a second. You know, nobody thinks anything of it if you're not at your booth for, you know, 30 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, bringing me up on the podcast. I'm stoked to be part of your project. And, um, yeah, I'll see you in Philly and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Pete. Bye. All right. All right. Thanks, Joe.